So forward thinking, strategic planning, clear communication, clearly defined roles and responsibilities, expectation of team members, clearly defined scope of works for the builder to price off. And again, communication, 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 so that everyone's on the same page. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of the show. I'm delighted to have you with me. How are you doing? Keeping well, I trust? I've got a great discussion coming up with a young developer with a big vision. I think you will enjoy the conversation that we have. Before I get to that, here's what I've been up to lately. I mentioned in the last episode that I had inked a contract to buy a new development site, and we are approaching settlement for that in about a month's time. So I've been ensuring all the business, financial and legal structures are in place. We are actually taking over a planning application on the site. So I've been busy working with my team to remodel what has been proposed and come up with a scheme we think is right for the market. I've had the land survey redone and I'm working with my arborist to see what we can do about the trees on the site. Otherwise, it's over to the architect to develop up the plans. I've also had some listeners asking me about the site where we lost at VCAT and what we are doing with it. I'll give you an update on that in a couple of episodes time. I've also been responding to the many inquiries that are coming in about the property developer training course that I mentioned in the last show, so thank you to all those people who are keen to know more. If you are interested in learning how to develop property, then drop me an email at justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and I can send you some further information. And just before we move into today's guest, I would love to do a podcast with a developer who has had some tough times to hear about what they've learned and what they would do differently. Maybe they've had trouble finishing a project or finishing multiple projects, or maybe they went bust. Hopefully they've bounced back and have some good lessons to share. So if you know someone who might be willing to be a guest on the show, please drop me an email and let me know. Justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com Okay, on to today's guest, a friend of mine from Sydney, Byron Sarkar. Byron has an interesting story to share about how he got into property developing and what he has learnt along the way. Byron started off his developing journey at a big corporate before branching out on his own. This ended up being quite a long conversation as there are many interesting sides to Byron's life, so I've broken it into two parts. In this part we talk about how attitude can really get you places, the importance of your feasibility and how long-term strategic thinking can help you see things on the way not in the way. In part two, we'll take a deeper look at how you can be strategic in your planning and thinking. Now, the audio on my side is not as great as I would have liked, but stick with it as there is lots of gold to discover. I started off by asking Byron what food he would eat until he was sick, and as he's a very fit and healthy person, I was intrigued by his response. Chocolate cake with ice cream. (laughs) It's got to be heated. It's got to be heated chocolate cake. Oh, really? Yeah. It's just that little bit nicer. My wife and I had a chocolate cake at our wedding that had to be warmed up and um, with a chocolate ganache, and that was pretty awesome. Oh, wait, really? Yeah. That's amazing. So I can see where you're coming from. I'll have to find out where you got that from when it comes to my And uh, did you say vanilla ice cream or just any kind of ice cream? A good vanilla bean is all that's required. 
Yeah. Otherwise, it's too overpowering to the, the chocolate, the warm chocolate. Uh, I was wondering whether you might be a, a chocolate ice cream man and doubling, doubling down on the chocolate quantity. Yeah, that makes you feel a bit sick sooner than vanilla ice cream will. So get a few more rounds with the vanilla. <laughs> so that's a question that I um, usually ask my guests. And one of my other backup introductory questions, which I'm going to ask you, uh, which will become more apparent in a second to our listeners, is if a Hollywood blockbuster film was made about your life, who would you have playing the lead role? Ooh, good question. That's a good question. At this age, uh, where I am now, at the end, where it's more... Well, I'll let you choose. Honestly, I love De Niro. I've always loved Robert De Niro, but that would have to be in, in my 60s and it's looking back my whole life. Now, oh, jeez. <clears throat> um... You know what, maybe Chris Hemsworth, he's a cool dude. He's Australian, he's, he's, he's cool. Um, I, yeah, I'd be pretty flattered if he did. Well, the reason that I ask you that question is because you are a property developer, but part of your background is that you have done a little bit of acting, professional <laughs> acting in your time. I have. <laughs> but playing my own life story would be would be kind of a bit self-indulgent, wouldn't it? <laughs> so you've got a little bit of an interesting pathway into developing. Yeah, yeah. Um, acting was something that I always loved as a kid. Uh, I always was a big movie buff, loved the idea of entertaining people and um, Getting to in, in, indulge and experience a whole bunch of different characters, which which can kind of break through your normal day to day experiences in, in one person's life. Whereas playing characters and, and sometimes legendary characters, you you get insight and you learn more, you expand your uh, understandings and and perceptions on different aspects of human behavior, which is another big big area of interest of mine, and. Um, being able to storytell, I think it's such a powerful medium that we get so much out of a good film, which, if only, which we may miss out on in our own general experiences in life because we can only experience so much. Whereas hearing the stories of other people and all their journeys, we we really get to expand our our wisdom and, and knowledge. Well, I was reading through some of your bio material on an agency website uh, and I just wanted to read this to you. Typical roles I am usually cast for for include henchmen, mafia, security, policemen, prisoner, tough guy characters. For anyone who doesn't know what I look like, I suppose I'm, I'm six foot two. I'm pretty built. I exercise a lot. Um, I have a bit of facial hair, dark hair, um, so it's easy to perceive me in that light that I'm a tough guy, whereas I'm a teddy bear on the inside. <laughs> but when it comes to acting, you can you can sort of adopt any role. So yeah, that, that that's what I would be typecast as. Right. Well, I don't know that we've ever had anyone who might fit in the role of henchman on the on the program before. So. <laughs> glad, glad to be of that unique service. <laughs> now it's interesting that you say you get um, you get to be play different characters as an actor and also convey storytelling, because 
I would imagine that would also lead into what you have to be as a property developer. You're wearing different hats some of the time. And really, we are storytelling, aren't we? We're creating stories around the buildings or the projects that we're doing and sharing that with prospects and hoping that they'll buy into it. Completely agree. I think that is that is probably one of the biggest aspects I bring to my developments is that I always tell the agents at the end of a project, I say, bring the prospective purchasers to the properties when I can be there because I would love to share the philosophy behind the creation. I would love to share the the inspiration that went into it, the unique design ideas, how it came about. So they're not just buying a piece of real estate, they're buying they're buying a lifestyle essentially. And and it what that does is it it not only inspires me a hell of a lot more and makes me enjoy the work I do, seeing seeing um, nothing coming to form. It's I love that whole process of design and creativity. And then when a purchaser's feel your enthusiasm, it breeds enthusiasm. So suddenly it's such a powerful differentiating point to another property that they may be looking at that your your typical agent is taking them through and showing them, yes, it's two or three bedrooms, yes, it's got these features, yes, it's in this location, proximity, blah, blah, blah. But there's no heart to the property. And I'm, I'm a massive fan of I always tell the agent or hence why I say let me talk to them is because I want them to feel the heart that's gone into this project. It's not just a a multi-unit development where it's just like everything's like clockwork and it's build, sell, and then repeat. I like to create pieces of art essentially without sounding corny, but that's what makes me wake up and go, you know, I'm inspired to to work on this project because it's a, a creative expression. It's a part of me. And I want whoever's going to be the end user to go, wow, this is, I'm, I'm inspired to purchase this property rather than it's just just a, an investment or, or, um, or, yeah, piece of real estate. And so that works when you've got built stock. What about if you're selling off the plan? If I'm selling off the plan, it would still be a lot of those elements where it's, the way the brochure is designed, creating a bit of a story. So in, in my most recent one, um, I, I'll give an example. There was this massive tree in the front of the property called a tallowood, and they're one of the most longest living trees that exist. I, I knew nothing about trees prior to this development. It was I was only building four, four apartments. They were seniors, so they were very large, single level, Um, and council gave me a lot of grief over this big tree with all the tree protection zone for anyone listening. If you've got a big, big tree, there's certain rules you have to comply with where it's the diameter of the tree times 12 is how long the circumference around the tree you need to protect and you can't build within it. So therefore such creativity was needed with my architect and how we could come up with the design of footpaths and where the building started and the driveway. Anyway, I decided to name the project Tullerwood. And because it was a seniors, therefore that became a metaphor and symbolism for the people purchasing it in their retirement that it represents long life and stability and a strong foundation. So that was part of the story that was unfolded throughout the brochures in the pre-sale stage. 
and then the right people are attracted to that. So that's that, that's an example of bringing more heart than a usual just some fancy name and and colors and nice render images. It was there was more of a story brought into it, and then even the fact that I put that thought into it, uh, it it bred my um, the the thinking outside the box and, and how much enthusiasm I I bring to the projects, which prospective purchasers looking off the plan would feel, and it resonated with the right people. And so, with the selling off the plan, do you still go in and talk to prospects? Um, not as much as if it was at the end or during. If it's during, I would as well. When they say uh, the walls up and it could be an empty shell, but I would still walk them through, and they would feel the size of it. And I'd say you'd see here the wall to there to there is a massive. Um, you see the size of the kitchen, it's going to be quite big. And I'll say that you've got to have a bit of an imagination for it. And then they want to put on their imagination because it's for someone who, who doesn't have an imagination, then it, they can feel, oh, we're, it's, a bit, it's a bit bland not to be able to imagine. So it's, it's presupposing that they are a creative type, that they do have an imagination. So therefore, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, I can. And therefore, they, they start to convince themselves even how this space is going to look. Um, but if it's right off the bat at the very, very beginning, then usually the agent will uh, do most of that for me where I will almost not give him a script, but I'll, to a degree, I will tell him how to portray the project. And he'll say it back to me and I'll say, yeah, perfect. That's, you've got to believe it when you're telling it to prospective clients. If you don't, then we're losing them or they're seeing it as just another property compared to everything else. Um, also, what I would do off the plan to add some incentive is I would say I'm flexible. If they want to change colors, if they want to change tiles, if they want to change the color of the kitchen bench to suit their creative expression, I'm happy to accommodate to that. So that's the plus of getting in early, whereas later on when it's already built, obviously they don't have the choice. Yeah, I think it's always really... I think it's always really important to try and get that emotional buy-in and engagement from the agents as well because potentially they're, they're potentially selling lots of different projects and if there's one that resonates with them, I think it's only human nature for them to put a bit more effort into selling that, that one. Yeah, spot on. Justin, I simply I would not do business with an agent that I didn't feel uh, that they are uh, inspired by what they do. I, I wouldn't. That's, that's a 101. So everything I've just spoken about prior to that, um, this is essential from the get-go, is that it's the right agent on the project. And so how would you go about selecting that agent then? Um, for me, fortunately, it's been, uh, the, the, there's been one or two agents that I've worked with over the last, actually... Yeah, one or two in particular that I've worked with over the last maybe six years and there was a mutual friendship there. So I knew of him through another friend and we caught up for a coffee to have a bit of a chat and he, he brought the enthusiasm. He loved hearing how I spoke, he felt my energy and he, and he would even voice it. He said, wow, I love your energy, different to other developers and, and it's cool how you're, I can hear the enthusiasm you have around these, this project. So it would be great to be involved in it. So when I could see that he genuinely looked interested to be involved, 
then I was like, cool, let's give it a trial. And I've, I've also had agents that say all the right things and I'll trial them. And then I've had to say, look, we came, we've come this far. We did some good work together. Um, but now we're at a stage, I think we're kind of on different pages. I haven't heard from you in a while or I'm not uh, as polite as possible. I, I will have to let them go. So I think it's, sometimes it will take you a couple to find one that, that works for you energetically and then you'll stick together for, for as long as they're in the game. So I have gone through a couple really lousy ones and then when I've found a couple of good ones, I've stuck with them. Okay, well this is probably a good point where we can go back to the beginning and get a little bit of your developing journey and tell us a little bit about the projects that you do, where you work, public stock, those kind of things. Sure. Um, how far back do we want to go um, from how I got into development, maybe? Yeah, how did you get into property developing? Okay. Um, it was something I've always been interested in. Um, I, I studied it at university. I did a Bachelor of Construction Management, and then I, did a, I majored in property development and did a thesis. For, I went for my honours. I was like, all right, let's, let's try and get that honours badge. Um, so you're not just a pretty nice <laughs> Well, it was part of it was part of it. I, I think at the time, if I'm really honest, it was because I thought it would look good. I thought it would this is this would be something that would be advantageous to my uh, career or it would make the parents happy. Um, so it was it was it was the path of security and safety that I pursued it. I hadn't fallen in love with it yet at all. Um, if I'm honest. And so I studied that. Then I got a job with Multiplex Constructions. And they were the biggest builders at the time. They, they were the IT company. Um, I, I must have been 20. And I wasn't by any means the ducks at university at all. I was, I was the one that was staying up all night the night before exams, cramming, trying to memorize the slides for the, for the next day exams. I was just... I was like, ah, oh, I can't stand some of this stuff. It's so textbook and it's just information. Whereas it's, it's learning about building or construction in a textbook versus being out on site and experiencing it is two different, two very different things. So, but one thing I've always been good at is talking with people. Um, and there was one guy who was in my university. He, he was the best. He was the ducks. He was getting your 99% in all the all the exams, etc. I was the one that's scraping through and he got headhunted from Multiplex to do a cadetship with them. And then when all the class members hear about that, they're like, whoa, this guy's like a god to get, to get headhunted from Multiplex. That's incredible. They only take on a couple of people a year or something at the time. Anyway, I, I was... I was um, I was inspired by that, and I thought, geez, I'd love to start working with a building company, and and um, so the first step to that would be get your OHS green card, um, which means you're then got the qualification or whatever it is that you can work on a building site. So I was like, all right, maybe I can do some laboring or or something, and I was doing part-time laboring at the time with uh, some friends of friends who own building companies. I was sweeping, I was doing dusting, I was doing all sorts of watering plants, all kinds of all kinds of the, the crappy jobs you got to start out in, which is okay because I was at the beginning. Um, and when I was doing my green card, though, it so happened that I was, I was sitting in the front of the room and I was, I was quite engaged because um, I was excited, like, all right, I'm gonna 
make that happy. I'm going to get, get get my green card. I'm going to get out and get a job with a good builder. And Anyway, the guy who was running the course liked me. And he asked me, he said, oh, so are you working at the moment? What are you doing with yourself? I said, look, I'm studying um, a Bachelor of Construction and Property Development at University of New South Wales. And uh, now I'm looking to get out there and, and get into the game and get some real life experience. And he said, oh, well, I just so happened to know the, uh, it was the, the, some, someone high up at Multiplex. And he said, oh, I'll have to give him a call and tell him about you. And I was like, whoa, that would be amazing. <laughs> um, thank you. And he said, yeah, yeah, let me give him a buzz and I'll, I'll, I'll organize you guys to get in touch. And then I was over the moon. I thought, oh, fantastic, thanks so much. And then it was a, a week later, I rang him to, to just check in, see if he had made his contact at Multiplex. And he said, look, I have, but he hasn't gone back to me. It, just hang on, um, stand by. I said, okay, okay. Meanwhile, I started to go for interviews with a couple other builders and it just was... They weren't interested in me. I wasn't interested in them. In them, I was thinking, oh gosh, this this is not really the path I am feeling inspired by. Anyway, eventually I get a call from him, maybe three weeks later, saying, hey, I've gotten in touch with the guy. Give him a call on this number. And I was like, awesome. So I called that guy from Multiplex. We chatted for about an hour, and he was really cool, really grounded, and he he liked my attitude. He said, look, I like you. Put a resume together and send it through. So I, I had no idea even how to write a resume. Um, but I put together a cover letter. And again, it comes back to what I was talking about earlier about bringing heart to what we do. So I just, in the cover letter, I just put my heart into it. I said, look, I really want to succeed in this industry. Multiplex is the best. I'm inspired by the opportunity to work for you guys. Um, I, I asked one thing, please don't judge me by how you view me uh, on paper. I ask that you you judge me by how you view me as a man in person. So I would love nothing more than the opportunity to meet me in the flesh and then see whether there's some um, what you how you feel about me. So so I sent the the average resume, but with what I felt was a, a powerful cover letter. Anyway, I get a call from him. Uh, there was a I think a construction manager or a director, someone probably three levels up from who does the hiring, and he called me up and said, look come meet me. And it took about three, four times to actually set up a meeting time because he was so busy, he kept getting sidetracked and then he'd have to postpone. And and after a while, I was like, geez, is this ever going to happen or is he just following me off? Then eventually, I think it was also because of my patience and perseverance that I, I stuck at it. I was tenacious in still ringing him weekly. And then it was the fourth time, I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I completely, I've been um, distracted with this, this, come down, meet me on a job tomorrow. So I went and met him and you know, I just remember him being all cool outside, having a cigarette, talking. It was so informal, it's not funny. He's just having a cigarette, talking to me. So what do you want to do in your life? This, this, that. And I just leveled with him and we hit it off. And a week later, they made me a job offer and I started working for them. And I worked for Multiplex for maybe two and a half years two and a half years. Um, again, mind you, I, I just want to, for, for anyone who's either early in their journey or or um, interested in getting involved in property development or, or construction management, um, it, sometimes we've got to start in the really crappy jobs. Um, but when I started at Multiplex, I thought I had it made. Justin, I thought like, I'm in, I'm in. Yeah, for the first six months, they had me sweeping the floors at the end of a day. They had me stacking the fridges with all... Um, 
with the, the drinks. They had me doing barbecue duties, cleaning up, going doing coffee runs. And, and I didn't flinch. I just thought I'm so, I'm grateful to be in this company. I'll do whatever it takes to climb, climb the ladder. And it was funny because two months in, a, a different uh, junior started. And, and he complained about everything in the first week. And they made life hell from him. It made life hell for him because he was all entitled, thinking that he somehow deserved to skip the hard work and to, to um, have it easy before having earned the right to get a, a good position and earn the respect of his peers. So moving forward, I, I was about two and a half years in when I was doing my thesis for my degree. I was interviewing a developer who actually had just left Multiplex to start his own development company. And this guy was a gun. This is where things took a turn for me. He was building at the time, this is going back 14 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, he was building some apartments that were selling for seven to eight million dollars each. And when I heard that, I was like, holy moly, Seven, eight million dollar apartment. Wow, it was right in front of the harbor, opera house views, um, uh, harbor bridge views. And so I was interviewing him and hearing all about how he approaches property development, how he assesses risk, etc. etc. And I did um, a lot of the material I covered with him, I used as case studies in my thesis, which was on the risks involved in property development, how to overcome them. And eventually, he ended up offering me a job. So it was, it was very tough because I had, uh, at least I, in my perceptions, I felt that I dug my claws into Multiplex and I had a great relationship with everyone in the company. And, and the thought of telling them I'm, I'm quitting was, oh, it was tough. It was one of those turning points in life where it's, do you choose comfort or do you choose to stretch yourself? And in comfort, sometimes the success is predictable where it's just climb the corporate ladder versus stretch myself, it's outside of my comfort zone, working with a new company, new territory, new responsibilities, new skills, new expertise I'm going to have to learn. But I said, you know what, I, I want to one day run my own company, I want to go the entrepreneurial path, so I decided to go work with him. So I started working with him and I learned a lot. I, I learned so much about all the different aspects that go into the development from the feasibility side to the design side to planning to how important communication is amongst the project team, how important relationships are, um, how important budgeting is, is a massive one. Um, and yeah, maintaining a relationship between the developer and the builder. Um, it ended up being yeah, a tricky project. It, it, some complications occurred between the, the teams of development and, and construction. Um, but got through that, it was an amazing experience, learned just as much about what not to do as I did about what to do to create a successful development. Um, formed a lot of relationships inside the business as well as outside the business. Then I was curious about doing development on my own. I had a guy who I used to work with at Multiplex, he had gone off and started his own construction company um, not too long before and he was always saying to me, look, let's start our own thing. And so we started the first thing on the side for me where we we're building some duplexes in Wollongong. And it was over the next couple of years, we 
did that duplex, then we did another one, then him and I just had different visions where we wanted to go. Uh, great guy, just we just had different visions. Um, and then it was from there that I, I formed my own property development company. And so what was the vision that you had that you wanted to form your own company? I was a long-term thinker. So I believe in, in, in business there are two types of people. There, there are people that will there are people who will think short term and it's all about getting immediate results and wanting the gratification instantly and therefore every dollar potentially earned in the short term is the sole focus. And then there'll be other people who are a bit more long-term focus where it's about setting up a strong foundation, working towards building something that has sustainability, maintainability, and will yield far greater wealth, but it will take time to build the vehicle to get there. So for me, I, was, I wasn't as concerned with making huge money straight away. I wanted to build a business where I had the skills, the knowledge, the expertise to be able to do a project. It doesn't have to be big, it could be small, but learn from it, then slowly expand bit by bit rather than trying to jump in and bite off more than I can choose straight away and risk screwing it up and pissing off people along the way because of greed or, or short-sightedness. And I've noticed that in, in my all my years in business, because now another part of my business I do is business consulting, um, all around helping people build culture and team performance and systems and, and structure, culture, to create long-term stability and scalability. And that's one of the biggest things I notice is that the greatest leaders are visionaries where they're thinking five years, 10 years, 20 year blocks. The people who are only thinking as far as they can throw, they're the ones that they don't necessarily inspire people to follow because they're only thinking about themselves rather than long-term growth, long-term stability, and therefore people want to buy into that vision. So anybody who's got that short-sightedness, the, the seeking instant pleasure, the gratification, I find that's what gets in the way of their long-term success. So I've kind of gone in a roundabout way to, to explain why I ended up on my own because I didn't want to be in business with anyone who didn't think like I did. And and years later, everyone's path unfolds in their own unique way and, and, and people um, come aboard with that more longer term thinking and they're the ones that end up doing really well. So, so that's how I ended up on my own. And what was your first project on your own? My first project was a house. It was just a, a developing a house. Um, so built a house and sold it. And then from that, then I was working on a, a, a piece of property that my family owned. And it was about um, trying to turn something that wasn't really being used or wasn't usable to um, working with an architect, finding out a way that it could get um, get some apartments on it or be able to do something that's feasible. And it was, yeah, it was a, it was a really, it was a tough project. It was a tough project to get through council. Um, and it took quite a while. 
Um, but but again, I find that it's it's the projects that are the most challenging that we learn the most about. We learn how to overcome obstacles, which is what builds our muscles, which is what builds our strength to be able to learn more, grow more, become more wise and experience. It's it's when things are easy, anybody can do well. It's when, when things become challenging and, and obstacles show up, it's how we show up to those moments that if we can persevere through them, persevere through them, that's how we grow. And and then from there was my latest one, which was in uh, Newport, Sydney, in Sydney, in the Northern Beaches, which was the four apartments. Um, and that was for seniors. And it was, yeah, it was a, it was a great project. Ha- had a lot of difficulty early on with a builder that I took on who was, was not a builder. <laughs> he was not a builder. He was, yeah, it was, was a disaster case. Um, he dragged on the project for a year longer than it needed to go. Um, it, it turned out that he had done the same thing to about 20 other different landowners where he had signed them up, um, started construction, and then just turned out to be incompetent, and it, 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 it costs a lot of money. Um, because interest interest rate so so when it comes to development as I'm sure you're highly aware that when when the construction takes longer than anticipated the interest can get soaked up so much and so I was, I was paying all this interest and, and it was tough to get rid of him because um, you got to go through all the formalities with the banks and they need to approve it and to try and find a, a different builder so once I was able to get rid of him, then I found a new builder who was fantastic. And we were able to finish the project in the next maybe nine months. And fortunately, the market had moved up. And it compensated for the fact that all the extra fees and, and, and construction payments that I'd made to the previous builder that, that were a cost and an expense. Um, but yeah, it, it, it came good. So I've kind of gone on a little bit of a tangent, I feel, but um, I might bring it back to you, Justin, for the next question. No, that's okay. I've got stacks and stacks of questions because uh, a lot of really interesting stuff has come up there. You mentioned that your project was for seniors. What made you decide on focusing on that particular segment of the market? Yeah, okay. Uh, so seniors is looked favorably upon because housing for retirees or people over 55 year old is there's a potential shortage. So the government likes it, councils generally like it. And also there is the provision, you can go through a SEP seniors um, provision which allows you to use a piece of land that's originally designed for a house where you can put apartments on it. So, for example, with Newport, it was 1,250 square meters. I was able to put four apartments on that because they were seniors. And if I didn't, if I just wanted to put regular apartments, I would not be able to. I would only be allowed to put one house. 
And from a development point of view, that's not so feasible. But for the, from a senior's point of view, it's that's a lot more feasible because you're getting greater leverage for your purchase price of the property. There are a lot of requirements and conditions to a seniors though. You have to be within 400 meters of a bus stop. And if you're not within 400 meters of a bus stop, then it's very, very difficult to get across the line. Um, then you also have extra wide corridors, you've got to have ramps, you've got to have a certain gradient to shops. There's all these conditions, but if you do find a property that's within those parameters, then you are able to put a seniors complex on there where you can do the, the floor space ratio is around 0.5 to 1 on any block. So if you've got 2,000 meters of land, you can put, say, 1,000 meters of apartments, which might be 10 units that are 100 square meters each versus on 2,000 square meters. The other option is probably subdivide and put two houses. So that's where, how I got interested in seniors. And I think you've also just acquired another block of land that you're getting a project started on. Hmm. So I'm in the process of, yeah, exchanging on another piece of land, um, which will be another seniors. So that's exciting. So I've, I've already been having lots of conversations with my access consultant about those parameters with the bus stop, the local shops, the gradients. If I'm a town planner, look at it in terms of the driveway setup because of the battle axe and as well as proximity to the shops and certain set seniors requirements. Uh, I've had my architect look at it, how we could, what we could do with the land in terms of how many apartments, the slope, the basement setup. Um, funnily enough, it had uh, two massive trees in the backyard, <laughs> this property. So again, with the tree protection zones, you have to it's it's not always how a property looks on paper because sometimes you've got a big piece of land it's in proximity to a bus stop or it, it looks great but there are other parameters like if there's a big tree on the land you have to work out how close you can build to that tree um, so there's so I had to get an arborist out we had to look at okay I had to be 12 meters away from the tree so then my architect had to relook at the design going okay how could I fit the basement how can we work around that tree so you don't drive over its roots, etc.? Um, so yeah, we're in the we're in the process of finalising that, which is it's looking to be a very exciting project. And what difference do you find dealing with that senior segment in terms of a buyer group? What things do you have to tick off? What challenges do you face? So originally, going back a few years ago, seniors were perceived to be less valuable because of the resale ability. So the way a seniors work is the, the rules are one over 55 year old must be living in the apartment at all times. So you couldn't have say a bunch of 20 year olds living there and that's it. You couldn't have two 50 year olds living there and their kids. It has to be one over 55 year old. That's how they measure it. And so originally, going back to my first seniors was people's reservation was, oh, yeah, okay, we, we can buy it, we can live in it, but what if we want to resell it? Then we're limited that we can only sell it to over 55 year olds. 
And so, yeah, it was a little bit of a sticking point until I learned more how to frame it. Because, so that was the drawbacks, is potential resaleability to a limited market. Whereas what I found throughout the journey was that, well, the benefits though of that is that you're also limited to the type of resident that is going to be living in it, which is only mature people. So there won't be the the crazy young parties and there won't be the noise and there won't be, um, yeah, the, the, the chaos that sometimes a typical apartment complex can bring. So there's certain parameters in the bylaws that it's knowing that there's going to be seniors means you attract the type of people that want a quieter community. And that actually became the number one desire of the eventual purchases, where they were even checking. So, oh, so you sure there's not going to be a bunch of 20-year-olds and that sort of thing living here? And I said, no, that's right. If they are, they're living with a grandparent or they're living with uh, their parents are older. And, and people would love that. They go, oh, great, because we're t- we don't want to be surrounded by noisy neighbors. And I said, I said, absolutely. And that's part of the benefit you'll have with the seniors. So, so you didn't market it as like a senior's version of Melrose Place? <laughs> that's awesome. It was more like the OC. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so funny. Um, it actually did become another, another selling point was that we were selective in who we wanted to be the purchasers because we wanted everyone to be able to get along. We wanted to create a mini community that people could knock on their neighbor's door and say, hey, have you got any milk or have you got any sugar and feel very comfortable. And that ended up happening. Where in the strata meetings, they're all like this little family now. You got each, each household is, feels like a family and they get on, they're great friends which you wouldn't get in, in a normal, typical apartment complex where you may have a 80-year-old, you may have a 20-year-old, you may have all people at different stages of their life, so not much in common versus everyone's of a mature age, everyone's of a certain financial stability because they're premium apartments. So they, they want similar things now at this stage in their life. So that became, again, more selling points. Yeah, I think from a marketing and selling perspective, if you really know who your market is, you can really tailor your language and the marketing that you use to speak directly to them rather than having to take a bit of a shotgun approach. Yes. Yeah, agree. Great. So, very, very tailored. Yeah, so it's, I think it's great having a very targeted or a very narrow market or narrow audience. Yeah. And so how long do you think it'll take you to get your new project and what sort of yield are you looking for on that one? Um, so the numbers I've done are that I, I would like to go in on any project that I can look at safely would return 20% profit margin. Um, less than that, it would have to be a real no-brainer. A real no-brainer, and there's nothing else around, and it's like, okay, even on a bad day, this still earns 15 to 20%. Um, this one looks like it would take probably six months to get an approval, and then I'd be at the lower scale would be expecting at least 20%. And, <laughs> and the number of units? Uh, at this stage, looking at eight or seven. 
may do seven where one of them is a jumbo unit instead of two smaller ones which would make eight so looking at seven and that all be single level on each floor is that right or yes yeah so it'd be split over three levels and four on ground two on lower ground two on level one and there would be nice big because we've seen is they they're their motivation is they're selling a big family home that the kids have moved out of. They've got this two, three, four, five million dollar home that they is no longer appropriate for their lifestyle. It's too big, there's a lot of maintenance, there's a lot of cleaning. So they want to sell it, they want to get money in the pocket as change to live off and have something nice and luxurious single level living, no stairs, and three bedrooms so that their kids or grandkids can come and stay in the spare rooms. And so that's what these would be designed around. Okay. I just want to go, go back a little bit. So you mentioned when you left Multiplex and you started working with this other developer, you learned what to do, but also just as importantly, what not to do. Can you just share with us the, the what to do and what not to do things that you learned? Yeah, sure. So one of the biggest things is when it comes to budgeting. So for a developer, we do our feasibility in the early days on how much the land will cost, how much all the consultants will cost, how much we think the properties will sell for, what the interest repayments will be if we have any finance, what the selling costs will be to the real estate agents plus advertising, marketing. And then we work out, okay, what we'd be left with as a percentage. So that's how our feasibility is done. Sometimes when it comes to, so say if the building cost is, let's say for argument's sake, is a million dollars, building cost for something. When it comes to getting quotes then from builders, we want to, we want to be as close as accurate that our million dollars we allowed in our feasibility is close to the real life cost of what it will actually cost to build. So if we go and start getting quotes from builders and builders start coming and say it's one and a half to two million, well then that's half a half a mil to a mil. Your feasibility profit has just gone down. So you can end up burning yourself if you buy a piece of land that you've done a feasibility for. Because when you buy the land, you won't necessarily know exactly how much construction is going to cost until you bought the land, done the DA got all the design finalized, then you can go to the market and get builders to quote it. So you've got to go off your feasibility for when you're buying the land. So you want to make damn sure that the construction amount you're allowing is close as possible to what the real figure will end up being. So I always allow a lot of fat in it. I do a worst case scenario. Um, so in this one particular project, they had done their FISO and then when it came time, the builder was pricing it, there were some elements that the builder couldn't even price because the design wasn't finalized. So, for example, let's say you're designing a, a set of units, but the windows are something super, super fancy where they're jumbo and they're five meter wide window. And at the time of pricing it, the builder is saying, look, 
Everything else is finalized and designed, but I'm not quite sure how to price this because it's not a finished design. So the developer may say, okay, price everything else. So price everything else, the firm dollar, but leave this as what's called a PC sum. Means that that price can be adjusted as you move down the track. And then the PC sum may be put down, which is like an approximate number you put down, say, let's say just for a round number, say it's, okay, $1,000 is allowed for the window. Then as you're building, if that window ends up costing 15,000, well, you've just gone 15 times over what was allowed for the windows. So that can end up blowing a project really out of budget. And then the trouble is, maybe it wasn't just the windows. Maybe it's okay, let's put a PC sum for the windows. Okay, but then how are we gonna do this balcony detail? Well, let's put a PC sum for that. And before you know it, you can have a, a project that's meant to cost 10 mil can end up costing 15 mil because of all these PC sum adjustments that are a lot higher than was what was originally allowed for. And I've seen that happen before where the developer can get really burnt and then ends up fighting with the builder saying, well, it shouldn't cost that much. And the builder saying, well, I'm entitled to charge whatever I think is fair. And then they can break into arguments where it's, they've got to go get a third party assessor to work out what's a fair and reasonable price for that. And it can always get a bit ugly because generally, this is extremely generally, but usually um, a mediator or, or a judge will rule in favor of a builder. Generally speaking, we don't have enough time to go into some case studies around that because the builder is the one who's, who's building it. They're allowed to put their margins on it. And it's, it's kind of hard to argue what's, what's fair or not fair. The builder can say, well, I'm entitled to charge what I want for it as long as it's not absolutely ridiculous. Um, so, so what not to do is, is to be too vague with pricing. You want to be as clear as you can with, with knowing the scope of works up front of exactly what you want the builder to be building. So even things like the tiles, even things like the bathroom fittings, the carpet, the wooden floor, you want to be specifying to the builder exactly what it is you want him to be pricing so that he can give you the firm dollar. Because if not, then he could he could allow, the builder could allow $30 for tiles. And then when it comes to building, you're saying, no, I expected a far better tile. And then the builder can say, well, I only allowed $30. And then the developer says, well, we can't put that in. That'll be embarrassing, such a, such a crap cheap tile. So it may go to, say, $60 a tile. But then if you've got 10 bathrooms at $60 per square meter, times out by a rough number, say, 2,000 meters, what's 2,000 times 30? Therefore, 60 grand. The price has just gone up. So that's why as, as clear as we can be up front with the finishes we want as well, the scope of work so the builder can price everything according to exactly what you want and you're both on the same page, will avoid arguments and disagreements later on which came as a result of assumptions. Oh, you should have known to put a better quality tile. The builder can turn around and rightfully say, well, how should I know? I just put in whatever I think is standard. And then the developer can say, oh, you should have known. But should have and could have and would have and assumptions. The judge would just be like, black and white, what does it say in the contract? Therefore, that's the ruling. If it doesn't say that, then you're not getting paid. Um, so, yeah, what not to do again is be vague and unclear in the exact scope 
and requirements of finishes that you want the builder to price for. Yeah, I remember that in my last project, uh, assuming or thinking the builder would do something the way that I wanted it done. Yeah. And then it gets built and you look at it and go, oh, that's not actually really what I wanted or had in mind. And you think back and go, another case of assuming that no one would understand or know or read your mind about what to do. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's... It's rarely done ill-intentionally. It's sometimes just the lack of communication. So, so having good communication, regular meetings, regular checking in that everyone's on the same page. And just because you've said something doesn't mean they understand it. It's literally checking in to hear them confirm that they understand that. It's, communication is just everything, everything when it comes to business. And any other not-to-dos that you can recall? Not to do. They are, they are huge ones. What I just covered about um, being really clear on the scope and communicating well. Um, another what not to do or what to do. Yeah, I would say I would say another thing. Yeah, what to do or what not to. Whichever way we look at it is 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 having clearly defined responsibilities and expectations among team members and amongst project members. So that way everyone knows what's required of them and they agree to it up front so that later on um, there's not a passing the buck of responsibility. Oh, I thought you did this or I thought you did that or you were supposed to do this or why wasn't this done? It was missed or I don't know who thought of it. And therefore mistakes are made which may only be picked up two or three months down the track saying, wait a minute, we're now at this stage installing the window, but who allowed for the track, for example? Like who, who allowed the, the provision around the walls where the window could be inserted? And then someone may say, well, I don't know. This wasn't thought about. <laughs> so now we've got to jackhammer the walls to allow room for the windows to fit in properly because there wasn't that communication and no one knew who was responsible for that aspect of design. So I would say clearly defined roles and responsibilities and strategic planning. There's another to do, important to do, is strategically plan likely challenges that you could come in um, into contact with along the way. So if you know you've got a really fancy window design or you know you've got some really fancy tiles you're custom ordering from Italy or Bangladesh or wherever it may be, it's forward thinking to, okay, how long are they going to take to get? How long are these going to take to make? If it's a six-month wait for those diamond-crusted windows, then we need to get them ordered straight away instead of three weeks out from when we need the windows going, all right, who's ordered the windows? And then it's like, oh, shit, we forgot the windows. So forward thinking, strategic planning, clear communication, clearly defined roles and responsibilities, expectation of team members, Clearly defined scope of works for the builder to price off. And again, communication, 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 so that everyone's on the same page. Okay, that's the end of part one of my chat with Byron. I hope you enjoyed it as much as me. I think Byron has quite an interesting take on life and property developing. Here are three things that stood out for me from our conversation so far. One. Attitude can get you places. 
As Byron said, he got his first opportunity with Multiplex because he was keen and showed great attitude. He didn't complain about his entry-level position and got on with the job. He demonstrated persistence and perseverance and it got him a start. The lesson for me was about being prepared to do whatever it takes to get the job done and not searching for excuses. 2. Be as clear as possible with pricing in your feasibility. Byron raised the very good points about being careful with your numbers to help reduce the provisional sums in your construction contract, maintain control over the scope of works, and being clear about the materials and finishes you want. As he said, being clear on all this at the start will avoid arguments and disagreements later by eliminating the age-old problem of assumptions. 3. Long-term thinking can help you see things on the way, not in the way. This is one of my favourite sayings. Everything happens for a reason, and I find if I have a big enough vision and a strong enough purpose, then I don't let things stop me from pushing forward. Yes, I can get frustrated with things taking longer than I want, or not going exactly to plan, but I deal with it and move on, because I have bigger things that I want to get done. Anyone that has ever done anything significant has experienced big challenges along the way, but they pushed ahead regardless. Alright, that's my wrap-up of part one of my discussion with Byron Sarkar. In the next episode, we will finish off the conversation and pick up talking about the power of having a vision and some quite detailed tips and ideas on how you can craft your own strategic plan to ensure your success as a property developer. If you enjoyed that conversation with Byron, Then take a listen to episode 18, where I speak with property developer Brendan Ansell, who arrived in Australia with $50 to his name and now runs a publicly listed development company in Australia. Here's a little of what Brendan had to say. Uh, Go easy on yourself in the short term, and um, because usually we we overestimate what we can achieve in the short term and underestimate the long term. In the first five years of becoming full-time in property, give yourself a bit of a break. That's the learning years and the growing years. And then if you've done it right, you should accelerate heavily between years five and ten. Make sure you tune into that episode to find out how Brendan ended up taking his company public. Don't forget to drop me an email if you're interested in learning how to develop property. You can find me at justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. And if you get bored next time you're at work or delayed commuting somewhere, why not leave a comment on iTunes about the show? If you do, I'll be your BFF. Remember, you can find all the past episodes of the show at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Property Developer Podcast for news, pictures and videos about developing. So, until next time, may you see all your issues as on the way, not in the way. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.